Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey, and today I'm going to be speaking with Andrew Chugg, a British historian and author who's probably the most knowledgeable, intelligent, and dedicated expert on Alexander the Great that I've ever come across. He has a fascinating theory about what really happened to Alexander's body and tomb after he died. And it involves a sarcophagus in the British Museum, a mysterious block of limestone beneath St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, and a conspiracy by the Catholic Church that allegedly goes back hundreds of years. So if you're one of those people that's interested in conspiracies, in unsolved mysteries, this episode is definitely going to be one for you. And let me just say that I'm a skeptic myself in most cases, but this is one where more and more uh, I'm starting to believe that Andrew is absolutely onto something huge. So uh, with that brief introduction, let's jump right in. Really happy to be here with um, one of the world's leading Alexander the Great experts, and um, Andrew. Uh, it's good to it's good to see you. I know it's been a couple of years since we last talked. Um, are you doing okay during this strange coronavirus time? Yes, I'm fine. I'm working from home, and uh, that's turning out to work quite well. So company isn't eager to go back to the old office system anyway. Great, great. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I was really happy to to get that email from you a couple months ago um, and excited to talk to you about some of the breakthrough evidence that you found about Alexander the Great's missing tomb. Um, but before we jump into that, I thought there would be a couple things you might want to refresh listeners on. First of all, can you just kind of, um, for anyone that's not familiar with you that's listening, can you just kind of give a quick refresh on... Uh, who you are, what your expertise is, and um, you know what areas that you've been studying uh, as it relates to ancient history. I'm um, a technical expert professionally in a UK company, UK aerospace company, but I've been per- per- pursuing a second career as an ancient history um, investigator, uh, historian, I suppose is the correct term, um, so I published a number of papers in classics journals like Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome, sorry, the American Journal of Ancient History um, and the Ancient History Bulletin. I've also appeared in a few documentaries for National Geographic on Alexander the Great and Alexander the Great's tomb. Cool, cool. Um, so when it comes to Alexander the Great, um, I want to make sure that anyone listening, I don't want to assume that they know a whole lot about Alexander. Um, obviously, most people have heard of him. He's one of the most famous historical figures of all time. But, uh, but people kind of have a vague idea of who he is, but they may not know much about him, and they may not know much about um, his missing tomb and why that is important. So can you kind of give us a quick refresh on who Alexander was and why this is a topic that you've been interested in, in solving the mystery behind? Um, I've always been interested in Alexander. I read a lot about him when uh, I was fairly young, in my teens even. Um, from then, uh, I kept an eye on the topic, uh, but in the 1990s, I was interested in having a topic that I could write a book about, and I knew that nothing had been written on Alexander the Great's tomb in English for a couple of hundred years at that point. The only other book was uh, 1805. Uh, so I thought it would be a good topic, and so I started researching it inten- intensively about 1996. Um, And as for Alexander himself, well, uh, as you say, he's uh, probably one of the most famous people from the ancient world. Uh, That's because he started out at 20 by inheriting the throne of Macedon in northern Greece when his father was assassinated. He spent the next uh, 13 years uh, essentially establishing an empire that included southern Greece in the first instance, then uh, the area we now call Bulgaria. Uh, And then he moved across into Asia and conquered most of the Persian empire. 
he visited Egypt along the way and took that into his domains. And he ended up uh, conquering even areas beyond the Persian Empire in uh, India. And then uh, he was compelled partly by his troops to turn back um, and he came back to Babylon and a mere matter of a year after returning, year and a half, uh, he dies in Babylon uh, and his empire uh, starts to split into different areas of control. It never entirely um, ceased to exist exactly, but uh, a series of other great dynasties inherited great Greek dynasties inherited various areas of it. Anyway, there's a, then that's when the real story from my point of view begins because uh, they wanted, Alexander seems to have asked on his deathbed for his body to be taken to Egypt. That's probably because he knew he would be deified there. The Pharaoh of Egypt was recognized as a God. And one of Alexander's ambitions was always to be recognized as a god, at least after he died. Uh, however, it looks like maybe his mother Olympias objected to this and the regent of the empire, Perdiccas, tried to take the body back to Macedonia. But Ptolemy had promised Alexander that he would take the body to Egypt and he basically hijacked it on the way when it reached Syria and took the body down to Egypt. Then he established initially a tomb at Memphis uh, and then later his son established a tomb in Alexandria, Alexander's own city, and it becomes the most famous and most holy shrine in the ancient world for the next 700 years, then it disappears completely without trace. That's why this is such an interesting matter. So this is one of the kind of most mysterious things that has happened to an ancient tomb of, of this magnitude. Um, in history. Um, it was something I remember being curious, doing a deep dive into Alexander and then wondering what happened to his tomb and his armor and his body and all this stuff and realizing that it was just a complete open question that no one had been able to answer. And then I started to come across some of your research and, um, and kind of your theory of the case, so to speak. Um, so what do we, before we jump into the new evidence that you've um, just brought to my attention and some other people's attention recently, um, can you kind of give the, the shorthand version of this theory involving the Catholic Church and sort of the changing tombs and that kind of thing? Uh, we did a deep, uh, deep dive on this um, a couple of years ago and have a, a couple hour conversation where we really went into quite a bit of detail and you explained kind of every step along the way. And um, I don't think we need to redo that whole episode. I think that um, listeners who want to hear um, kind of that play by play can access that um, at ancientheroes.net and then in, in quite a bit of your writing as well on your website. Um, so for today's purposes, I, I see this as kind of a part two to that conversation. Um, but can you start out with kind of the the cliff's notes for anyone that hasn't heard that that might not be aware of of all of this? Um, what do you think may have happened to Alexander's tomb? Uh, and can you kind of give that timeline um, that you've been working on? Um, the overall theory is that uh, the tomb appears now to have disappeared uh, at the time when the emperor of the Roman Empire, the last Roman Empire of the entire empire, a chap called Theodosius, uh, declared paganism to be illegal. And Alexander had become recognized as the 13th pagan god of the pantheon uh, in Rome. And that had actually been confirmed by the Roman Senate. So he was a bit of an embarrassment. His tomb was an embarrassment in Alexandria. That seems to be the point where the disappearance occurs. Uh, and there is no record of exactly what happened, but we know there were riots in Alexandria. Um, and we know that other pagan shrines were turned to Christian purposes. Uh, so it's quite possible that something like that happened. What my research showed was that at the same time, uh, a tomb of St. Mark, the supposed founder of Christianity in Alexandria in the first century, also appeared 
in Alexandria. And that body, a few hundred years later, got taken to Venice. So the interesting speculation was that supposing you're looking for um, a mummy in Alexandria that disappeared in the last decade of the fourth century AD, uh, there is only one mummy that appeared at that time. And that, uh, that is this mummy that was supposed to be St. Mark. So we have the tomb of the founder of the city disappearing and the tomb of the founder of Christianity in the city appearing at exactly the same time. Some of my research also showed that this appeared to happen in roughly the same place. The tomb of Alexander and the tomb of St. Mark appeared to be in the same place near the central crossroads of the city. So all of these things made me suspicious. Um, and what we need further to talk about perhaps at this point is that there are two pieces of tangible evidence, fragments that uh, came up in my research as possibly being parts of this tomb. Uh, and these strands of evidence for the two things were completely separate when we last talked. There's a sarcophagus, which has long, long, long been rumored to be the sarcophagus from Alexander the Great's tomb. Uh, we can track it, its association with Alexander's tomb back 500 years. Uh, 200 years ago, just over, Napoleon found it in Alexandria. His troops got defeated a few years later and a British chap called Edward Daniel Clark grabbed this sarcophagus from the center of Alexandria and took it back to the British Museum where it is today. It's a sarcophagus made for the last native pharaoh of Egypt, Nectanebo II. Uh, he fled from Egypt uh, 10 years before Alexander invaded Egypt. And so he never used his sarcophagus. So this sarcophagus would have been empty and available probably in some kind of tomb or intended tomb of Nectanebo II that was unused when Ptolemy brought Alexander's body back to Egypt and needed a tomb at short notice to bury the king in. What more obvious tomb than the tomb of the previous pharaoh? After all, Alexander was a pharaoh. There's also a, a legendary account from the ancient world of Alexander's careers called the Alexander Romance. And in that romance, next Nebo II is made to be the father of Alexander the Great. Um, he used uh, witchcraft on Olympias. This is a legend, by the way, not, not actual history, but the fact that the legend exists, and this is a legend that came out of Egypt, uh, connects Nectanebo II with Alexander, independent of this sarcophagus that actually was made for Nectanebo II. So, uh, the, uh, not me, but uh, uh, the uh, professor of classical archaeology at the University of Cambridge in 1948 suggested that this legendary account of Alexander's career um, had made the connection with Nectanebo being Alexander's father through seeing Nectanebo's sarcophagus used for Alexander's tomb. Because that's roughly where this story comes from. It's that, that time in ancient Alexandria that the story comes from. So there's a lot to make you think that this sarcophagus might really be the one that was used for Alexander's tomb, and it's now in the British Museum. So that was one strand of evidence. It's supported by some other things which we probably don't have time to talk about really, like there were Greek statues guarding the, the probable site of this tomb at Memphis, and they still exist today. Uh, and there are people like Homer, who was Alexander's favorite poet. So they're quite logical uh, decorations for the first tomb of Alexander at Memphis. This is the first tomb, remember, it gets taken to Alexandria a bit later by Ptolemy's son. Um, but anyway, that in a, in a nutshell is the association of this Nectanebo, the second sarcophagus, and the concept is that it was reused by Ptolemy for Alexander's tomb because it would take 10 years to carve out one of these sarcophagi out of solid granite. And he didn't have that long. He needed it at short notice. So that's the basic idea there on this fragment, which still exists. Now, when I came up with the idea that maybe Alexander's body was the one that got taken to Venice uh, several hundred years after, um, it was actually in 828 AD, uh, several hundred years after the tomb of Alexander disappears in Alexandria, 
This body of St. Mark is taken to Venice by some Venetian merchants who want to set up a shrine in Venice and have some holy relics to worship of one of the writers of one of the gospels. What better set of Christian relics could you have other than Jesus himself? And they're not really available. Um, so that's uh, what happened there, that these remains. But if you follow my other line of reasoning that this uh, mummy of St. Mark, which appeared exactly at the time that Alexander's body disappeared, might have been Alexander the Great relabeled, then we have this theory that maybe the bones in Venice, which still exist, uh, a, a full skeleton, might be Alexander the Great. Well, that is very, very speculative. I'm the first to admit that. But I tied it down with another interesting piece of evidence and another archaeological fragment. In 1960, in the foundations of the church of St. Mark, it's called the Basilica di San Marco in Venice, that was built to house these remains, to house this skeleton, they found a lump of Macedonian tomb. It has a starburst shield on it, most famously, with an eight-pointed star. That is the symbol of the Macedonian kings. Um, and then it has a lance, a type of Macedonian lance called the Sarissa at a diagonal angle across it. And it has a copis sword, which is a Macedonian cavalry sword and some greaves, which are Macedonian uh, lower leg armor, uh, shin guards. Um, it has all those features on it. It wasn't identified as a piece of Macedonian tomb by me. It was identified as such by Eugenio Polito, who is a professor who specializes in Macedonian tombs in Italy. Uh, and he declared it to be a piece of Macedonian tomb in 1998, more or less at the time I was starting my research. And I didn't know anything about his research for another six or seven years. Uh, so that's another independent strand. And I said, ah, well, something which might suggest that this body was brought from Alexandria, that was brought from Alexandria was Alexander's body, is that there's a lump of Macedonian tomb in the foundations of St. Mark's. And the most logical thing would be that they found this lump of Macedonian tomb next to this brought body that they brought back and they embedded it in the foundations of the church, uh, perhaps thinking it was a bit incongruous for a Christian saint, but not wanting to lose the strand of connection with Alexandria. So this is the second strand of evidence. It's completely independent of all the evidence on the sarcophagus. Uh, but it ties down with a bit more practical reality the possibility that the body in Venice is Alexander the Great, uh, because how else do you get a piece of high-status Macedonian tomb um, embedded in the foundations of St. Mark's? Um, some people have tried to explain that, but what they say doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, that's now where we're at, that provides the little introduction that you've requ requested to where we're at right now. So what, out of curiosity, how does the, I assume the church just doesn't make any kind of comments on these kinds of things. I mean, how do they explain why there's a piece of a Macedonian tomb in the foundation of this church? Uh, they, the church certainly doesn't comment technically on the theory but there are a series of scholars who are close to the church in northern Italy from the University of Venice, of Venice for example or various parts of the University of Venice and they have investigated the matter. Um, they are aware that Eugenio Polito, another Italian professor, had said it was a, a piece of Macedonian tomb from the Eastern Mediterranean. He actually said it was from somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean, but they came up with the idea that actually this is a copy of a Macedonian tomb um, by possibly someone in the Roman period. Uh, and that it was uh, from a quarry at Aracena, about 120, 130 kilometers from Venice. Um, and that was a Roman quarry that was opened up in the first century BC and the stone for this uh, fragment of Macedonian tomb matches the stone in terms of the type of stone, which is limestone, a very, very tough metamorphosed limestone, almost marble, 
uh, and uh, it has fossils in it called rudists that come from the late Cretaceous period, and that matches this quarry to some extent. Uh, so they've said that. What I did uh, in response to that was pointed out that this kind of rock was laid down right the way around the Mas right the way around the Mediterranean in the late Cretaceous period, uh, and some outcrops of it exist in Egypt, and there is in fact um, a quarry which has rock of the same kind that was used to build um, a pyramid by one of the fourth dynasty pharaohs. Um, and that that pyramid is called the Lost Pyramid nowadays because the stone from it was used to build ancient Alexandria. So there's also an alternative way yes. of getting exactly the same kind of rock. And you don't have to make the supposition that the Romans made exact copies of Macedonian funerary sculpture, which is completely different from Roman uh, funerary sculpture. Do they have an explanation or some scholars that are close to the church have an explanation, but it's not necessarily, it, it's, it's not a slam dunk and it's not necessarily more probable than what you're suggesting. Uh, it's worse than that. They've published in a journal called Hesperia, a couple of alternative theories of uh, how it could have been produced by the Romans. Uh, I think uh, one of them relies on an associate of Julius Caesar having visited Egypt with him and decided to build a tomb monument for himself that looked very like uh, a Macedonian one that he'd seen in Egypt. Uh, all of this is very much a case of uh, last ditch defense of yeah. uh, the concept that it came from Northern Italy, in my opinion. Right. Um, right. So well, and, and that brings me, I guess, to, you know, how much do you think they, I mean, are, are, do they claim to this day that the remains um, beneath the Basilica are those of St. Mark's? And is this, I mean, is this something that that's just at kind of absolute dogma within the church that they, that you think they would be willing to kind of come up with any explanation to defend that? Or are they open to other possibilities? Uh, I don't think they want to be open to other possibilities. They don't make any claims exactly. They rely on the tradition, which is that it is St. Mark. Uh, and they just don't differ with that tradition. Uh, if you were... Um, a cardinal in the church in northern Italy and you had a body that was supposed to be St Mark the Evangelist and it was the most important Christian remains that actually exist. I mean if you don't have Jesus Christ himself then the bones of an evangelist, one of the writers of the Gospels, is about the next best you can do. So they are the most holy um, Christian remains in the world uh, of that nature and they do have about the longest history. You can track them all the way back to fourth century AD Alexandria, uh, which is indeed where St. Mark probably died, um, according to Trist Christian tradition. So if you have all of that, why would you want to see it right. disturbed? Yeah, so they, and they clearly have, you know, they have a bias in all of this <laughs> uh, to some extent. Um, so going forward, I mean, it sounds like since we talked a couple of years ago, at that time, you had a theory that you had fleshed out and that made sense. The timelines made sense. Um, and it was, it was more circumstantial evidence. And you admitted that. And you said, you know, it's, it's a strong possibility. I haven't heard a better explanation, but I can't guarantee that this is what happened. Um, but it sounds like since then, you've added some more direct physical evidence behind this. Um, and what has your response been, if any, from other scholars, other historians, academics? Is there, is there skepticism around this theory? Is, are people starting to take it more seriously if they hadn't been? Um, what has your response been? The only response, let's do the response thing first, the only response of any significance so far is that the British Museum has changed its website on the sarcophagus that they have. Uh, 
they did have a curator's comment on their webpage that said that the uh, sarcophagus was incorrectly associated with Alexander the Great when it joined the collection in 1803. They've now deleted the word incorrectly in a revision of their website in May this year, uh, following my discussing uh, the new evidence with them, and indeed all of the evidence with them, and pointing out to them that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the sarcophagus was not used for Alexander, and that it's an amazing coincidence that it has so many associations that would lead you back to the time and place of Alexander's first tomb. Interesting. Because a forger would just have to be almost infinitely knowledgeable. We're talking about space aliens rather than forgers, really, for somebody to have managed to uh, associate this um, association with Alexander with something that already had so many historical associations with the uh, his early tomb. Um, anyway, that's... Uh, that's how does this so focusing on the sarcophagus for a second um you mentioned that basically we can only go back so far uh with that um as far as the rumors of it being associated with alexander what is your take on that and and how do, do we have any idea of of why you, i think you said 500 years i'm not sure but um yes why why was it associated with him then i mean was there something there's something written that that connects alexander to it's not it's not that it started 500 years ago it's just that we don't have any records uh that are specific enough beyond 500 years back to know that it was this sarcophagus that was being called the tomb of alexander there is an arab record from a thousand years ago of a marble tomb of alexander existing in alexandria um, which was long after Alexander's tomb had disappeared. But uh, it, and the speculation would therefore be that that was this sarcophagus as well. But there's nothing specific about uh, where it was in the city or which sarcophagus it was in that particular account. What we have at 500 years ago is a chap called Leo Africanus uh, writes uh, an account of, which includes an account of Alexandria, and he talks about visiting a tomb in a small chapel of Alexander the Great. And at the same time, roughly, we have uh, the earliest uh, map that marks uh, tomb of Alexander the Great in Alexandria by Brown and Hogenberg. It was actually published in 1575. It's believed to use evidence from the spies of the uh, Emperor Charles V, who were, because Charles V was considering invading Northern Africa. Uh, and that was evidence gleaned in the 1530s. So that's why it goes back 500 years. But that map has at its exact center, a building which is labeled uh, Domus Alexandri Magni, which means the residence of Alexander the Great. Uh, and it has the minaret of a mosque next to it. And the actual building that's labeled is a small octagonal chapel. Well, the place where the sarcophagus was found by Napoleon is in the middle of Alexandria, as per these accounts. And it's in a little octagonal chapel in the courtyard of a mosque with a minaret. So we can be fairly sure that those records from 500 years ago are referring to our sarcophagus and they're calling it the tomb of Alexander the Great 500 years ago. It's just as far back as we can go. Okay, I see. I wish I had, I was at the British Museum a couple of years ago. I wish I had known. Is it on display in the museum? It's on display in the museum. They don't even mention Alexander, though, except on their website. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I wish, I wish I had known that at the time. Well, so, okay, so the one thing I'm not connecting here right now is, it, it sounds like to me, there's a lot of reasons to believe that this sarcophagus that already existed was used to house Alexander's body. It sounds like there's a lot of good evidence for that. How is that, how does that support or connect to this larger theory about Alexander's remains being transported to Venice and you know, all of that? Is that, how, how does it support that, that theory? That's where we come to the new evidence. Last year, I, with a couple of colleagues who were interested in this, I visited Venice. It was August last year. It was almost a year ago today, actually. Um, we're only a few days off the uh, anniversary of the visit. 
and I particularly wanted to have a look at this block again and get some good measurements of it. I had a theory that it might originally have been a block that was four foot tall and 10 foot wide. Uh, and I thought that by looking at the standard of a foot that was used, I might be able to date it. You see, the Romans used a slightly shorter foot than the Ptolemaic Greeks. Um, so uh, if, if it was Ptolemaic, it might have, it might be four foot by 10 foot on a slightly larger scale of a foot, about 32 centimeters than the Roman foot, which was about 29.6 centimeters. And uh, so I went there with the intention of investigating that. And then I discovered when I did do these careful measurements that it didn't really fit any standard of foot particularly well. And I was stumped. Um, and then I started to look in uh, a old book, the 1805 book actually by Edward Daniel Clark about the sarcophagus. And I suddenly noticed that he said that the sarcophagus was three foot 10 inches high. And when you translate that um, back into meters, it's almost exactly the same height as the star shield block uh, in Venice. Uh, and that astounded me because what that suggests is that the star shield block in Venice is part of an outer casing for the sarcophagus of Nectanebo II in the British Museum. And that's exactly what the Ptolemies might have done in the tomb of Alexandria, put a Macedonian casing on the Nectanebo sarcophagus. And it gets better because obviously the next question is, okay, you have a coincidence in height, that's something. What about the length? As I just mentioned, it's the original block was probably about 10 foot long, but it isn't now because the whole right hand half of it is missing. It was cracked away. We only have half the original block in Venice. Uh, however, as I also mentioned, that lance is uh, running diagonally across the block and it appears to run from the top left hand corner and it probably terminated in the bottom right hand corner. And you can use that diagonal and where it would have, how, how much width you need before it touches the bottom right hand corner. You can use that to work out how wide the block was as well as how tall. And that gives an exact fit to the Nectanebo sarcophagus as well. So it fits as part of an outer casing for the Nectanebo sarcophagus in both height and width. And even now, you might be wondering, well, if they did make an outer casing, why on earth would they have made it exactly the same height as the sarcophagus itself? Why wouldn't it be a bit taller or a bit shorter? Uh, there are some good answers to that, I think. In the first place, if you did make it um, a bit shorter, it wouldn't have completely concealed the hieroglyphics on right. the sarcophagus. And I think the Ptolemy who built the final tomb of Alexander in Alexandria, the fourth Ptolemy, uh, and he built it around 215 BC, might not have wanted the hieroglyphics to be readily visible. Uh, whilst not wanting to throw away Alexander's original sarcophagus, he might have wanted to give the whole thing a definitively Greek flavor rather than an Egyptian flavor. So that's a good reason not to make the outer casing shorter. Um, and as it's even more interesting on why you might want uh, not to make it uh, taller either, because there are grooves, very interesting and previously unexplained grooves in the lip of the sarcophagus in the British Museum. There are three of them at symmetrical positions, exactly the minimum number you would need for inserting rods uh, between the lid and the bottom part of the sarcophagus in order to lift the lid up off the sarcophagus. And we know that the Ptolemies and uh, Augustus Caesar, no less, actually did view the body of Alexander when it was in this tomb. So somebody must have had some way of lifting the lid off. Now imagine you make an outer casing so that it's taller than the lip of the sarcophagus inside. How the hell do you get rods in uh, through the stone of the outer casing in order to lift the lid? You don't. So you can see exactly why 
the Ptolemies would have made the outer casing to be exactly the same height as the sarcophagus. Presumably the outer casing also had continuations of these grooves so that you could put your rods right the way through the outer casing and the next nebo sarcophagus to lift the lid off of both. They probably both had lids, the outer casing and the um, next nebo sarcophagus certainly would have because all that type of sarcophagus from the late period pharaohs had such lids. So that is where we're at. And what I've managed to do as well is I've looked at, as I've said, there are other sarcophagi like the next nebo sarcophagi from some of the other pharaohs and other royals or very high status Egyptians from the late period, the period just before the Greeks got to Egypt. And you can take a sample of them and you can look at the range of their height and width. Uh, and you can do make up a little distribution of what the height and width of this type of sarcophagus was. And you can use that distribution to find out how probable it is that if you selected one of those sarcophagi at random, it would fit the block in Venice as well as the block in Venice fits the Nectanebo sarcophagus. And that is no larger than 1% probability. So at 99% probability, we have a conclusion that the Starshield block in Venice is part of an outer casing for the Nectanebo sarcophagus in the British Museum. And that essentially proves the entire theory. Interesting. So, wow. So, um, I mean, it totally would make sense to your point about the outer casing needing to match the dimensions of the sarcophagus. And it also makes sense that if they're repurposing the sarcophagus in the first place that was originally made for a different ruler, that they would want some kind of Greek Macedonian outer casing to sort of um, to denote that this is Alexander. Um, so all of that makes complete sense. What I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is where did the sarcophagus, so in this theory, there's a group of people is transporting some of these blocks and the sarcophagus to St. Mark's. Uh, there are several transportations that go on in this. There's an initial tomb of Alexandra at Memphis, which is where they probably only use the Nectanebo sarcophagus. In Alexander's time, the Greeks were quite fond of the Egyptian uh, culture, uh, and there was no motivation to hide the Egyptian nature of the tomb. Uh, Alexander himself said he wanted to build uh, an Egyptian-style pyramid over the tomb of his father in Macedonia, for example. Uh, there are a few examples like that which suggest that Alexander's Greeks admired the Egyptians and all their culture and their artifacts. However, as you go into the Ptolemaic period for the next hundred years, there comes to be a bit of stress between the Greek rulers and the Egyptian subjects. And uh, now there is more of a stress in Alexandria and from the Ptolemaic pharaoh uh, on all things Greek. So I think uh, the, what happens is that the tomb gets transported to Alexandria by Ptolemy II, Ptolemy Philadelphus, uh, in about 280 BC, roughly speaking. He builds an initial tomb in Alexandria, but we have a record from an ancient writer called Zenobius that the fourth Ptolemy, uh, the grandson of Ptolemy Philadelphus, a guy called Ptolemy Philopator, uh, he rebuilt the tomb of Alexander in the middle of Alexandria and put uh, his own uh, ancestors in, in it as well, in the same mausoleum. Um, so we're probably talking about that third tomb, the second tomb in Alexandria and the third tomb overall. And we're probably talking about Philadelphus putting this casing on because that is actually also the central date that Eugenio Polito put on the block in 1998 when he said it was part of a Macedonian tomb. He said it dated from between the beginning of the third century AD and the early uh, second century BC. And 215 BC is bang in the middle of that date range. Okay, okay. And so is, is okay. So, 
at this point, and I'm sorry if you just, if I'm not following at this point, they were still using the sarcophagus or, or no. They're, they're using the sarcophagus again and again. Uh, it's been right. brought from Memphis to Alexandria. It's been put in the first tomb in Alexandria. Then Ptolemy, uh, Philopator decides to build a new tomb in 215 BC uh, for all his ancestors together with Alexandria in the middle of Alexandria. And he still uses the sarcophagus because by then it's been used for Alexander's tomb for more than a hundred years. So it would be fairly sacrilegious to throw it out or to kick Alexander out and put him in a new one. Right. Uh, so he still uses that, but he wants to make it more Greek. So he takes the opportunity of his new tomb to put a casing that's fundamentally Macedonian around it. Okay. With Alexander's arms on all of the images, uh, all of the sculpted images around it to decorate it. I see. So I, get, I guess what, I, what I'm getting at is why did this Macedonian block end up in Venice? I mean, they transported all, you know. Ah, well, you would, uh, what seems to have been the case is that they adapted Alexander's tomb, or at least its foundations, to build the Church of St. Mark in Venice. So it was all built on the same foundations. And this, the actual tomb chamber would have been subterranean. That's the way Greek mausoleums uh, were built. They had a tomb chamber beneath ground. So it kept it nice and cool and even temperature all the year round. Because uh, Egypt gets very, even Alexandria gets very hot in the summers. Uh, and that's a bad thing for ancient corpses, smells and all that. Uh, so you would, that's the way they did it. They had a, so you can imagine that the subterranean tomb chamber was possibly to some extent still intact in this church of St. Mark. They just relabeled the remains. And so when the Venetians come along a few hundred years later, still, they still find this body of St. Mark in the remains of Alexander the Great's tomb. And they decided to take a piece of it back back with the body because they found it in association. And, you know, in 828 AD, they're not going to be distinguishing between um, Ptolemaic Hellenistic uh, sculpture and Christian sculpture. If they found it next to it, they'll assume that, it, that it, these were symbols of St. Mark. Um, so they probably thought it was a worthy thing to take that back as well. They may have taken some other pieces that we haven't found yet. Okay, okay, I see. And so the sarcophagus itself was found in Egypt. Is that right? uh, it was in Egypt up until 1801. And then Edward Daniel Clark arranged for it to be shipped back to the British Museum. I see. Uh, and that's where that's been for the last, and it still is there in almost the same place that it was uh, 220 years ago. So from your perspective on all this, looking at the bigger picture, are at this point, are you what do you need to, to kind of, to feel completely definitive about, about this? I mean, you just said that basically because of the way this outer casing fits with the sarcophagus and then the surrounding evidence pointing to Alexander uh, being in that sarcophagus and, um, and all of the kind of circumstantial evidence that you put forward, it sounds like you're pretty, you've gone from feeling like this is the strongest theory that I've heard, but there haven't been many good ones to now feeling pretty, pretty certain about it. Is that the case? Or are you still looking for some kind of confirmation around this? I'm, I'm following the maths on the fact that the Nectanebo, the second sarcophagus and the star shield block in Venice are at 99% confidence parts of Alexander's second tomb in Alexandria and the Nectanebo sarcophagus goes right way back to the first tomb in Memphis. However, that's as far as the certainty goes. Um, although I am therefore encouraged that it is more likely that the skeleton in St. Mark's is Alexander the Great, that is not something that it's possible to be so confident about, but that is definitely the area where the most definitive evidence could come from if there was an investigation. The reason why it's impossible to be so confident about bones is that there are several instances in their history where a different body could have been swapped for the original one. 
It could have happened even back in Alexandria. That's probably fairly unlikely, um, but that could have happened. There could have been a swapping then. Uh, it is more likely that there are, there are two instances in the history of the church in Venice. In 976, the original church had a serious fire in it. And it's quite possible that that destroyed the original body and they put a replacement in instead. More seriously, there's an actual legend that the original body disappeared for a while in the late 11th century, like 1068 to the 1090s, uh, when the church was rebuilt to some extent. It was built on the same foundations, but in an expanded form. Uh, and uh, Therefore, at that point, uh, because we're told that the original body disappeared and then it was miraculously rediscovered in the, in the Venetian legends. So what, did, what actually happened then? Did they really lose the original body and bring in a substitute and create a legend to explain the substitute? Or did they uh, rediscover the original body? And was it just a minor incident where somebody forgot exactly where the tomb was underneath the floor of the church or something like that. Don't know. But because of those events, it's not really possible to be certain that the skeleton that's there now is the original one. So I still think it's very 50-50 over whether that is actually Alexander the Great. What you would do to check is really easy. Alexander the Great had very unusual wounds. He had an arrow to the center of his chest that probably damaged his sternum and he recovered from it. And he had an arrow to one of his lower uh, leg bones and it damaged that and he recovered from that. So you would see healed bone damage in those two places on the skeleton. And if you saw that, it's going to be Alexander with pretty much absolute certainty. Uh, but nobody has looked. Nobody appears to have looked at that bot body since maybe uh, the first half of the 19th century. Uh, so nobody knows. And the church has explicitly refused to look. Uh, in 2005, they sent a message to a TV producer who wanted to do a documentary on this to say that they didn't feel that any further investigation was necessary beyond the investigation that was done in 1811 when the bones were moved from the crypt to lie under the high altar itself within the church. That's, that's if you want the church position is the definitive church position that still stands now. They have not made any revision of that statement from 2005. Um, the other things that could happen though, are that there could be further investigation of the star shield block. Um, there are some details of its, um, uh, its exact form, which would make it fit the Nectanebo sarcophagus a little bit better that could be investigated. I won't go into that because that's very complicated, um, but there are some very detailed studies that could potentially be done. More importantly, it would be easy to determine whether the rock of which it's made matches this quarry at Aracena, 130 kilometers from Venice, or matches the quarry in Egypt that I talked about. Those two sets of rock are about 19, sorry, 10 million years apart in date. One's like 90 million years ago, and one's like 80 million years ago, roughly speaking. There is a test that you can do on limestone. It's called the strontium ratio test. And the strontium ratio tells you how old the, the stone is, and it'll give you a resolution of only a million years or so, one or two million years. So you could easily work out whether this stone is more likely to come from the Aracena quarry or the Abarash quarry in Egypt. Uh, and that would be a very interesting test to do. And indeed samples appear already to have been taken from the block for the Venetian investigation in 2006. Uh, and they should still exist according to Italian law, they should be kept. So you don't even have to take a new sample from the block, you could do that again. Uh, the really weird thing is that in other sculptures that have come from the Aracena quarry, in published papers, the first thing they did to try and figure out where the blocks came from was a strontium analysis. And yet the Venetian scholars, Lorenzo Lazzarini, I think is the leader of this, has completely failed to publish a strontium ratio 
for the Starshield block. And I find this slightly suspicious. So interesting. So some, some people uh, supposedly have been trying to do exactly that, but there have been no public findings published. Uh, Lorenzo Lazzarini is the chap who published the information about the fossil mix matching the Aracena quarry. It would, uh, in the case, for example, of Roman gravestones um, from northern Italy, they traced them back to the Aracena quarry by both the, the, the fossil analysis and doing a strontium ratio, because that nails it uh, to, you know, to the rock being exactly the right age as well. Uh, so Lorenzo Lazzarini will undoubtedly have known about those studies. He's a leading professor of geology in Venice University. And yet he has published a paper on how this rock, how this rock may have come from Aracena. And he completely omitted a strontium ratio. And literally, it's a matter of sticking your sample in an envelope, sending it off to the laboratory, paying $100 or so, and the results come back next week. So and why? I, and I have a feeling that... Um that the church isn't going to offer you any more samples? Of the, uh, the, church, the church will own the sample, uh, so they get to say what happens, yes. I see. So um, have you reached out to uh, this guy about what's going on with the samples? Um, uh, it, it, they're not exactly accessible to communications from me. I don't exactly get an email every week from them. They are very, very silent. Uh, I have talked to some of the other characters involved in Italy, like Eugenio Polito, and I think he's very interested in the new evidence. Uh, however, um, uh, much of the rest is yet to be seen. Remember that this has only really been published in any form uh, since uh, about January, February this year, exactly when there was a really big news story uh, coming to prominence uh, around the world. And so there hasn't really been much of an opportunity at this point. You're in early on this. Well, and so, okay, so let's, so here's what could happen. I think it's probably, and I'm curious what you think about this, it's probably very unlikely there could be any kind of additional kind of historical record of tombs being changed or moved and that kind of thing. Um, it's not likely, it's not impossible. There are still a lot of papyrus fragments being decoded and uh, translated from uh, stockpiles in Egypt. Um, they uh, salvaged tons of it from uh, places in Egypt uh, more than a hundred years ago and the scholars still haven't worked their way through that whole pile. So it's not impossible, but that really isn't a likely day uh, way of getting information. Um, uh, further information on this. I think the direct investigations of the two fragments, um, the Nectinebo sarcophagus and the Starshield block, are the most likely ways forward in the near future. I see. So yeah, the, the bones would be the most definitive way, although like you said, even if you know the church was willing to allow inspection of the bones, which they're not, um, and it turned out to not be Alexander, it wouldn't necessarily show that at one point Alexander's remains weren't there because there had, whatever these legends are about St. Mark's, you have to then map on to, that that was actually potentially Alexander's remains, not St. Mark's. So, um, and you know, um, so with the stone, if you could show that the stone, and just correct me if I'm, I'm in, if I'm wrong here, but if you could show that the, the stone in the foundations of the church with the Macedonian symbols, that stone would be originating from Alexandria, correct? Yes. Okay. Okay, so if you could- uh, It would have been sculpted in Alexandria. The, I suppose the extension of the theory is that they might have got the stone from the Lost Pyramid at Abu Rush, which is 100 kilometers south of Alexandria. Okay. Um, that's where the stone would have originated but from. It, that's the theory you, on that. If you could show that that stone had been imported from Egypt, that would be, that would basically, that would be pretty definitive. I mean, that would be as close to testing the bones as you could get, I would think. Uh, yes, but 
the evidence on the fit is just as definitive as that could be. It would just be a second piece of definitive evidence on the same scale as the fit. The fit already demonstrates at um, a level of confidence that uh, is beyond reasonable doubt. Unless somebody finds a huge hole in this line of reasoning, which is kind of unlikely when it's straight. The measurements that I'm talking about, they're not published by me again. The Eugenio Polito published the height of the block in Venice as 118 centimeters in his book in 1998. And the British Museum have measured the sarcophagus uh, the highest part of the sarcophagus, uh, which happens to be the part where this block in Venice would fit on. Uh, and that's a, they've published completely separately 118.5 centimetres. So there is a difference of five millimetres. And of course, the Eugenio Polito value was probably rounded to the nearest centimetre anyway. Uh, and anyway, the Starshield block in Venice is so battered, you can't really measure it to more accurately than five millimetres. So they absolutely agree on the nail to the limits of measurement on other people's measurements. I have just pointed it out. Yeah, it seems to me like the only way that the church would ever allow more access to the bones, and they probably would never, but it would only be if there was a point where there was a, a tipping point and kind of the, it became almost a consensus among historians and academics that this was the most likely outcome. I'm wondering from you, how, how much interest do you have in, in building that consensus among other experts? Is it something that, I mean, it seems like it's pretty definitive or close to definitive for you, obviously you're trying to popularize the, this, this theory um, with the general public. How much interest do you have in convincing historians, academics, you know, archeologists, whoever, that, that this should be kind of the, the most likely possibility? I and a couple of associates have followed exactly the reasoning that you have just described, which is that the church will not have a motivation to allow an investigation of the body until something like a majority of academics uh, or expert people in general believe that the tomb is more likely Alexander's uh, than not. At that point, then they have a 50% chance of showing that it isn't Alexander, according to my, what I told you myself. And at that point, it becomes advantageous to them to dispel the rumors by allowing an investigation of the body. So, uh, but uh, it is exactly because if we can get enough people to understand the evidence and express the fact that they think that there is validity here, uh, that it will move the church on a proper investigation of the matter. Uh, that's exactly my motivation in the matter right now. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I hope that uh, this episode and, um, you know, that we put out on our website and, uh, and a more in-depth part two article will help, will help accomplish that. Um, so th those are really all the questions I had, Andrew. Are, is there anything else about this that you want to add before we wrap up? I don't think so. You've been very good in letting me have a good romp through uh, this rather complicated matter um of uh, one tomb after another after another in multiple different uh so i thank you for your attention yeah. uh, and i hope your audience find it just as fascinating as i and i hope you have yes absolutely you've laid it out very clearly um i think you did talk about there's always kind of more depth to each of these different points that you've brought up and so what i'm going to do is make sure that we have links available for all of these things so people can do a deep dive um, into the different measurements and the backgrounds of these different um, tombs and stuff like that. Um, where can people find, where's the best place for people to go to learn more about you and to, and to kind of directly access your writings and books and, and everything? Uh, there are links to most of my writings and appearances on TV and uh everything really, books. Uh, Quest for the Tomb of Alexander the Great is the uh, main book on this now. Uh, 
And there's, I brought out a third edition of that with this new evidence at the beginning of this year. And that's available on Amazon and what have you. Uh, probably all of it comes together on my academia.edu pages. If you go to academia.edu and search for Chugs, C-H-U-G-G, you should find me fairly easily. Cool. And I'll have a, I will have a prominent link to that on our website in our article as well. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to see you're doing well. Um, and I hope that uh, there's some more breakthroughs and we can you know, talk about this again sometime in the near future. I hope so. But don't hold your breath. Yeah. The church uh, works slowly. And waiting for them to change their mind is like waiting for an earthquake. Yeah, well, maybe, um, yeah, no, I understand. Maybe, uh, maybe a couple of years from now, uh, something will come to light. And I know that you are work much more quickly than they do. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I think all this stuff is just completely fascinating. The conversations I've had offline with friends or, you know, um, just people I know, people that know nothing about Alexander the Great or ancient history per se, just immediately become fascinated by by this theory. And I hope that it um, piques a lot of people's interests and draws them into this, into these different fields. So, okay, Andrew, well, that, that, that's about it. That's all I got. Um, hope we can talk again soon. Thanks again. And I'll be okay. sending you a, a link to that article once I have it. That'll be great. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. You can follow Ancient Heroes on Facebook. You can see this episode and others on our YouTube channel. You can always find the links that we discuss and more research at ancientheroes.net. Thanks to Derek Feischer for providing the music for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening.